In ancient Greece, the earliest philosophers quickly realized that there was a difference between truth and convention. Each Greek city-state followed their own laws and mores. They could see that these laws and mores were the product of human convention. Now, some were content to simply leave it at that. This group was called the Sophists. They believed that there was no higher principle of justice beyond that of a particular society. Sophists taught their followers to obtain their objectives by adapting their speech to the conventions of the city-state in which they lived. When in Athens, do as the Athenians do. By contrast, Socrates and his pupil Plato believed that there was an abstract ideal of justice against which the laws of any city-state could be measured. Plato's student Aristotle believed this as well. One of the things that all three of them recognized, however, was the difficulty of drafting laws that would be consistently just in practice. Thus, Plato famously said, the differences of men and actions and the endless irregular movements of human beings do not admit of any universal and simple rules. No art can lay down any rule which will easily last forever. Plato's solution was simply to get rid of the law altogether. In the Republic, his vision of the perfect society, there was no governing law, only a governing body of perfectly rational philosopher kings who would simply judge each situation on an ad hoc basis. Aristotle didn't go that far. He recognized that philosopher kings were in short supply and that there was a practical benefit to having a fixed legal code. Yet he also recognized that in some cases applying the letter of the law to a given situation would produce injustice. So he introduced the concept of epikaia, or equity. Equity was the principle that at times the letter of the law had to bend in order to produce a just outcome. In other words, sometimes the overly rigid application of the law would negate the good that the law was intended to foster in the first place. Equity is, in effect, the highest aim of the law, so much so that particular laws sometimes had to bend to equity. We recall that when Jesus was asked by one of the legal scholars what was the greatest commandment, he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and the first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The whole law and all of the prophets depend on these two commandments. This teaching isn't meant to replace all of the commandments, but it does provide the interpretive framework through which all of the other more particular commandments and laws that we follow as Christians must be understood and interpreted. It's the why behind every what. It's the equitable principle upon which the law is based. Some scripture scholars believe that this story of the woman caught in adultery was not part of John's original text and was inserted later. Ironically, in the 5th century, St. Augustine said that some Christian men wanted to excise this passage from the Bible, fearful that their wives would use it to justify cheating on them. So it's a controversial little story, but one that is so intriguing and memorable. 
The reason why some feel it's a later addition to the text is because they claim it seems discordant with the thematic concerns of John's Gospel, which is to establish the divinity of Christ. Throughout John's Gospel, the Pharisees complained that Jesus was making himself equal to God. Thus, some claim that the story of the woman caught in adultery is out of place, focused as it seemingly is merely on the practice of mercy and forgiveness. But if we understand this passage properly, we see that, in fact, it fits precisely with that purpose of demonstrating Christ's divinity. The key to understanding that is to see that equity is at the very heart of the law, and that the law comes from the very heart of God, who is equitable. In the gospel, the scribes and the Pharisees bring before Jesus a woman caught in adultery, and they address Jesus as a teacher, which is important because in doing so, they are addressing him as they would a legal scholar or a rabbi, whose job it was to give opinions about the application of the Torah to a given situation. Yet they present this issue to Jesus as a fait accompli. They say to him, teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? Notice what they don't say. They don't say, for example, we saw this woman doing such and such. Do you think this is sufficient evidence to convict her of adultery? Nor do they even say, this woman appears guilty of adultery. What do you think should be done with her? They are giving Jesus no wiggle room here. At other times, they question Jesus about the law itself because it was ambiguous or unclear. But here they are telling Jesus what the law commands and then simply inviting him to agree or disagree. Why? Because they weren't actually interested in justice. They wanted to incriminate Jesus with his own words. Because it says, they said this to test him so that they could have some charge to bring against him. They knew that he had this reputation for speaking about mercy to sinners, which they didn't like. So they were trying to show that his mercy was such that it would contravene the clear teachings of Moses. But the text gives clues that not everything is as straightforward as it seems. For they say, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now that's important because the Jewish law of proof on this point was especially rigorous. There needed to be at least two direct eyewitnesses to the same overt act that could be given no other reasonable interpretation than an act of sexual delicto. So how is it then that the scribes and Pharisees just happened to catch this woman in the very act of committing adultery when Jesus was in the temple, but, not, but, have, but seemed to have not been able to capture the man who was involved? Does anybody smell a setup? That perhaps the woman was deliberately induced to commit adultery and the man involved was conveniently allowed to make his escape. So the scribes and the Pharisees reveal themselves here to be especially callous. They are willing to entrap this woman in adultery so that they can then entrap Jesus into contradicting the law. It's interesting that when Jesus is challenged by the Pharisees and the scribes and other places in the Bible, he is normally quick to respond verbally, but not here. Instead, he bends over and starts to write something with his finger on the dust on the ground. Many people have wondered, 
what could he possibly have been writing? Since Jesus is not known to have left any personal writings, it seems so intriguing to speculate. But I don't think that Jesus was actually writing anything that was meant to be read. Rather, I think he was making a gesture, a gesture that invoked the scripture passage where the tablets on which the Ten Commandments were given to Moses were said to be inscribed by God's own finger. But even more deeply, by tracing his finger in the dust, Jesus is invoking Genesis. The Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground. Jesus cannot be trapped by the law because he is the author of the law. From the beginning, in John's Gospel, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came to be through him, and without him nothing came to be. What came to be through him was life, and this life was the light of the human race. The scribes and the Pharisees understood the technical intricacies of the law, but they didn't understand that the purpose of the law was to foster love. The purpose of the law is to free us from sin, not to amesh us in it. They didn't understand that this God before them was the author of all law, and he would not stand by idly while the law was used inequitably to strain the gnat, but to swallow the camel whole. And so, yes, Jesus recognizes that the woman committed sin on some level by giving into temptation. And so he told her, go forth, and from now on, do not sin anymore. But he reserves his true rage for the Pharisees and tells them, let the one among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Just like where Jesus says in other places, judge not, many people misunderstand the saying. He isn't talking about whether these men have ever committed any other sins in their lives. Even they would admit that they did. No, he's talking specifically about this sin, of engineering this little stunt before him. It echoes the words of Jesus. Whoever causes one of these little ones to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone hung about his neck and for him to be cast into the depths of the sea. And so they departed, one by one, beginning with the elders. Because the elder scribes and the Pharisees were no doubt the ones who were the masterminds of this trap. Even in our modern day, we have the maxim, "Who he who seeks equity must do equity, or one must seek equity with clean hands. A person cannot be complicit in creating the sin and then self-righteously condemn the sinner. Law is rooted in equity, and equity is rooted in charity. When we lose that perspective, our attempts to apply the divine commandments revealed by God in Scripture will falter. No system of law is self-executing. It must be administered in equity, meaning in love. Thus, in one fell swoop, we see the truth of Pope Benedict's assertion, Deus caritas est, God is love. Or Pope Francis, the name of God is mercy. Love and mercy are not there to soften the rough edges of God's justice. They are the wellsprings from which all law, all justice, and all right judgment flow. Because God himself is love and mercy, and his law is a manifestation of that. Without love, all justice is a farce. On the night before Jesus was betrayed, he had one last chance to speak to his disciples. He didn't say, 
let's go over this Trinity thing one more time. Or he didn't say, let me explain to you again how I have fulfilled the prophecies of Isaiah. No, he said this, I give you a new commandment, love one another. As I have loved you, so also should you love one another. This is how they will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Everything flows from the law of love. That's not to say that we don't need to know anything more beyond that. But if we don't at least have that, if we don't keep that at the forefront of our consciences, then we have nothing. No law, no system, no practice will save us if we are not first rooted in love.